Hello listeners, a friendly reminder that the companies and topics discussed on this podcast are general advice only. Please consult an advisor or accountant for any personal advice. All right, hello again and welcome to this week's episode of the Market Pulse podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in. This is actually episode 32, the Town Hall edition. And my name is Dion Gruberman, host of the podcast. As always, if you do ever have questions for the show, you can shoot them through. I do have an email address here. It is marketpulsepodcast at gmail.com. And if you do like the episode as well, jump onto your whatever podcast platform you use. I don't know. Apple Podcasts, Spotify. I don't know if Spotify allows this kind of stuff. But leave a review if you do like it. It always helps the cause. But we're going to start where we always start, which is checking in how the markets went for the week. So the ASX 200 was up. It was up 1.2% for the week. The S&P 500 over in the US was just up. It was up 0.2%. The NASDAQ was a little bit better, up 0.8%. So not as good in the US. The ASX feeling a little bit better. And a fair bit of ground to cover today in terms of various different companies. As you can see, still a green week for the ASX. Not not nearly as good as the index performed last week, but we'll take it. Definitely a case of a few sort of interesting stories floating around on our market, which I'm going to touch on. But I think I might start off with just some more broader you know, macro, in quotation marks, issues that played on the market this week. And there's quite a few key things to mention here. And I think, so I think the first thing that was sort of going on is you have the European and US share markets have kind of been a little bit shaky for a couple of reasons sort of off the back of increasing coronavirus infections across Europe, so across the European mainland, really across the Northern Hemisphere at the moment, but it's really starting to become quite apparent in Europe. You've seen these like curfew measures being introduced across major French cities, and there's a lot of pressure on London to do something similar. And they're, well, they've, they have started to do some things. They're pulling back restrictions on meeting people that are outside your household, and sort of, you know, broadly across the European continent, you're seeing spikes in, in cases and not just France or the UK, you're seeing Italy again, Spain, Netherlands, it's kind of running right through the continent. And this is, of course, spooky markets because it's all about anticipating what might come of it. Will there be further lockdowns or going back into lockdowns similar to what we've seen before? And I think, I guess it's also the market's getting a bit more worried that it's not, it might not bounce back to be better quickly or anything because that the Northern Hemisphere is heading into winter, which can be a problem, of course. And another factor that sort of hit the markets this week were US jobless claims. Now, if you recall, the US went through some absolutely insane weekly jobless numbers. They're still going. I mean, (laughs) relative to historic figures, the numbers are still insane, but you almost kind of get, you almost get a little bit complacent each week when you read about it because it kind of... um, was it? It just sort of like sets in and it and sort of normalized. But the but the figures that came out this week kind of spooked investors, at least in the US, because they actually ticked up when analysts had actually predicted them not to tick up. They they, they believed they would slightly fall down. So just having a look here on CNBC, so they said first time filings for jobless claims uh, hit. This is for last week. Hit eight hundred ninety eight thousand. So just under nine hundred thousand. And why that was a problem was the estimates coming in from Wall Street and analysts was, was cl- going to be closer to 830,000. 
And this this weekly jobless claims is actually the the highest level since August 22. So it maybe shows a trend that things aren't getting better or such. Maybe they're even getting a little bit worse. And that was actually about 53,000 more jobless claims than the week prior. The week prior was yeah about 845,000. And nothing compares to, I think, what, what was it? It was... It was back in March. No, yeah, towards the end of March, start of April, that's when you had those insane numbers, which I think goes back to like the early episodes of this podcast, like around episode seven or six. But we're talking almost 7 million in a single week and things like this. So it's definitely come down from those numbers, but these are still huge numbers. Nothing that has ever been seen before coming out of the US Labor Department. But yeah, I mean, that's definitely still playing on minds like the recovery of, for the US. And I think, again, kind of what I was saying a couple of podcasts ago where I sort of, I'm not, I'm, I've never been too convinced that who the president is specifically shakes or rattles Mark. I mean, there's, it seems to be the market's just sort of waiting to see what happens with the election. But I think the biggest thing that they're looking for is any kind of stimulus package, which again, it just seems to not be happening in the US. And that's, that's going to be the kicker because that's going to, you know, however the U.S. economy performs over the next few months, that it's going to be, it's a lot of it's going to be affected by whether or not there is a stimulus package. And and most people now are betting that it's not even going to come until there's an election result. But the problem with that is that doesn't mean as soon as there's an election result in November, they just immediately put a coronavirus package on the table because the U.S. is weird. Like as soon as whether Biden wins or Trump wins re-election, there's just, just such a fluff period between then and into the new year when they actually do the State of the Union and blah, 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 blah. Like, I, don't even, I wouldn't even be convinced necessarily that that something happens this year if they, if they can't even get it done before the election. But who knows? Anyway, that's, that's still something that's getting watched. And I might continue on that, I guess, that theme, I suppose, and jump back to Australia because we've had some updated unemployment data filter through from the ABS and I think that's worth touching on because we touched on it when they came out last month. A small increase from the month prior, unemployment in Australia increasing 0.1% to 6.9% overall uh, over the month and of course that's still down on the peak that we had which was several months back now but that was 7.5% but no improvement on the month prior so 6.8% last month, 6.9% this month. There was also a pretty, pretty much the exact same bump in underemployment rate. So they went up 0.1 to 11.4%. Well, there's plenty to talk about this week. And I'm actually going to start with some of the bigger, well-established companies in Australia. Many of them had their social distancing COVID virtual AGMs during the week. The likes of CSL, Combank, Telstra, a lot of those really big Australian companies. And I've gathered, gathered a kind of like a few notes here from those things or some key points out of those ones. I might start out, I might talk about two that are sort of, well, these are all kind of very bedrock stocks that you'll find in many portfolios, but I'm going to start with sort of the income orientated ones, which are CBA and Telstra. So we'll start with Telstra. I think, like I said, very much, very much a backbone of a lot of Aussies portfolios, not myself personally, but it's very, it's a very common, commonly brought up name for investors chasing a yield through dividends on the market. And I guess unlike unlike the other two that we'll mention, CBA and CSL, Telstra really hasn't delivered on 
shareholder value over the years since it did float. So, uh, I mean, there's been peaks and troughs in the price over the decades. So in saying that, I guess there's been opportunities for active investors who might have picked the right opportunity to to make some money off their Telstra shares. But I think, so for your long-term shareholders or long-term investors, I dare say this has been more likely a pain in the portfolio side than anything to jump up and down about or get excited about. So, but in saying that, they actually had a really good week. Their shares were up 2.5%. I think a lot of that comes from basically the the assurance coming in the line from the top during the week that the board and from the CEO that they want to stabil, uh, maintain some stability in their dividend payouts and, and keep paying an annual dividend of 16 cents. And they said that even if it means they temporarily overshoot their target payout ratios to do that. Well, they didn't. They said they'd have to review whether they definitely can do that. But now, what I'm referring to there is, and and this isn't just a Telstra thing, but big dividend-paying stocks will often work out a range that they provide as, I guess, as guidance. So, like a dividend payout ratio. So they might say something like, "Our right, our policy is to pay out 50% of earnings, or 80% of earnings, or somewhere between 60 and." 80 or whatever it is. But Telstra, I think Telstra is their standard framework as it is, is 70 to 90. It used to be a lot closer to 100, but 70 to 90 at the moment. And now the, I guess the news off the back of that probably provided some assurance to shareholders because they, well, I guess people who are chasing income, one of the one of the things they like is trying to get as much stability as possible. You can never guarantee stability. Dividends are not ever guaranteed. But as close as you can come towards that stability, that's what that's what they're chasing. And that's not me saying that you should buy Telstra or anything like this, but I think it I think obviously those words coming down the line was put a bit of confidence back in step for shareholders, hence why I had a little bit of a little bit of a jump during the week. And on a similar note, banks are also very much a fundamental part of many people's portfolios. CBA this week was kind of speaking to a very similar theme around dividend policy. And we've talked about it on the podcast a couple of times now, but the bank sector, I mean, dividend payouts this year have suffered overall just because of business performance. But but you also got APRA putting its foot down on how much the banks can actually pay out in an effort to, I guess, make sure they keep some capital on their books just to mitigate any you know big loan failures or anything on, on their mortgages and things like that. So CBA, one of the big big dividend payers, probably more of an accurate word to say is is, is probably more that they've been a reliable dividend payer. I think that's probably the better way to, to word it because they're not always like the biggest yield or the biggest dividend payer, but they are very reliable. And again, like we were saying at the top, when we were talking about Telstra, that's very, very important. And the AFR reported on the virtual... AGM that CBA held during the week. They quoted CBA chair Catherine Livingston as wanting to actually return the bank to paying out dividends closer to around the 75% ratio as much as possible. I guess once they've got that green light from regulatory bodies to do that. Now, there's no, there's definitely no guarantee or should I say there's no assurance on when that might be. A lot of that's 100% up to the regulator and not the, the CBA chair. And also our economic conditions, broadly speaking. But I guess that's a little bit of assurance there for CBA shareholders in terms of pushing or getting a bigger yield going going forward. The current one, they 
reserved well they paid out like pretty much just under 50% because 50% is the cap that APRA have put on the banks as it stands in terms of their payouts of their earnings I mean a green shoot to take from this AGM from CBA especially given that CBA is the biggest home mortgage lender in the country is that they've actually seen some pretty big improvements in deferred loans now the number of loan repayment deferrals at the moment is 129,000 that CBA have, but that's down from 174,000 in August and 210,000 in June. So it's actually an improving number there for CBA. And so that they said that they had $42 billion worth of loans where repayments are not being made as it stands. But again, if you go back to say June, it was closer to about 67 billion. So it's not still not great. That's still there's still that's a lot of deferrals and it's a lot, it's a big loan book that's not being paid, but I guess a, an improving situation there. So that's CBA, and if we move on over to CSL. So CSL floating around in the news because it had it had some pretty good news for shareholders during the week. It actually raised some profit and revenue growth guidance. So. Just looking, so the CEO was quoted in the AFR as well, citing one of the big tailwinds for CSL right now is just a jump in global demand for flu vaccines. And so they had a bit of a push from the Oz government during the year to increase supply. That was more specific to Australia. But globally, he was saying, the CEO was quoted saying that typically the US Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, so the CDC, they would purchase about 500,000 doses of flu vaccines, but they've basically, they're looking at closer to 5 million this time around. So that's a big jump there and good for CSL. A CSL member, they're the ones working with the University of Queensland on a COVID-19 vaccine. They're also, they're basically pegged to be the manufacturers of that Oxford vaccine study. If it does end up being successful, of course, they'd be the ones to roll it out, especially here in Australia. And they they had a pretty good week. They closed up about 1.25%. But I'm going to finish the podcast today and touch on two companies this week that certainly stole the show in terms of performance on the market. And the first is a newcomer. It is, and when I say that, I mean they're fresh out of the gates as of yesterday. So Aussie Broadband, it's an NBN retailer here. You might have actually seen their advertising. They're, They're a lot smaller than some of the other NBN players, of course. But I think it sort of came to my tension earlier this year i remember getting i think i got something in my mailbox or i saw and saw some kind of deal online for this company now that aussie the aussie broadband ipo so it, fl- it went live yesterday now the ipo went for a dollar per share that you could buy into for aussie broadband it immediately not immediately but it basically jumped in like the first hour or so up to two dollars twenty or so and then it didn't close that high, but it closed at $1.91. So if you had participated in that IPO, you effectively doubled your money in a day. So <laughs> really crazy. I, I was looking at an article on Rask Media here and they noted that, so with their IPO that they did, $10 million of the IPO was actually reserved for Aussie Broadband customers. So you, so if you're a customer, you, I guess you're invited to subscribe or sign up to the IPO if you wanted to. Of course, you don't have to. And it was fully subscribed in, they say here, in about 75 minutes, which is crazy. That's like some, <laughs> that's like some splendor in the grass kind of stuff. Like it's just, it went really quickly. And a lot of, a lot of the hype 
that's surrounding this company and probably what drove it on Friday is the growth prospects of it. And that's, which is kind of a little bit, it's a little bit of a strange one to talk about because of the industry they're in, because this is the same industry where you've got like Telstra who they talk about how the MBN is super hard to make any money on and generate a return just because of the, the margins are too slim because, you know, they, they buy it from a wholesale point of view from the MBN themselves and sell it back to the retailer. So they just, they, they apparently it's a lot, it's very hard to make money on. And they definitely were saying that again throughout the whole week during the AGM. But that, ha- that doesn't seem to phase people investing in Aussie broadband. And I mean, it's been fueled by some massive growth numbers in customers. They add they added about 112,000 new customers in the last financial year alone. They're projecting to add more than that this financial year. So, and their 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 company is a little bit different. So they, I know their CEO said something along the lines of they they price their then they're not like the cheapest, right? I'm not saying they're expensive or anything, but they've factored in those margins, and they're not they're pricing it at a, a good price for their business. And they're also relying on like things like strong customer service and they have very quick sign-up times, like they can connect you very quickly. So their service is is apparently very good as well. So that's what they're banking on. But that's gonna a really good a really good debut day for, for Aussie Broadband there. But I think the jump in terms of big results for the week, you have to give it to Redbubble. And if you haven't heard of Redbubble, I've used them a couple of times in the past. Their website is quite good. It's and their service is good. It's just a. I think the concept around their website is really fantastic. So effectively, you can. I mean, it might be better if after you listen to this podcast, you just go jump on the Redbubble website and you'll understand it a bit better. But effectively, it's like a marketplace where you buy anything, like like goods, like a like clothing or homewares, whatever. And they have design, so you can pick designs on them, and these. The designs that you pick, they come from some, some say an independent graphic designer who puts them up or some artist. So, so what I mean is, so let's say I'm a, let's say I, I know how to do graphic design and I don't, or maybe I do it as my job or maybe I do it as just a side gig. So let's say I create something like some kind of like funny Game of Thrones reference kind of shirt or graphic. I can put it up like as a, like a content creator, I guess I can put it up or an artist, I can put it up on Redbubble and then say you could come along and buy a t-shirt with that graphic on it and there'd be a million different types of, you could pick from like a tons of different types of t-shirts to put it on and colors, but effectively I get like Redbubble makes some money off it, I get a cut because it's my design and the customer gets this, I guess this almost custom shirt that's got this design on it and it doesn't have to be a shirt, right? It could be um, it could be like a mug or whatever it is. And this, you know, I guess what's cool about a business like this is they're kind of able to flow with whatever's happening in the moment. So the example I give, and they talked about it this week, was face masks, right? So you you could do the same thing, the example what I just said above, but with face masks. So you could use heaps on their website that have really cool designs or or funny things or or just various colors on them. And it's, and it's very, very easy for Redbubble to do this because they've already got all the infrastructure in place because they're, you know, in terms of they're already set up for a COVID world because they don't have physical stores. It's just all, um, all relies on logistics and, and posting it out. 
but they've already got the artists in place who make designs and all this kind of stuff. And if we use 2020's most cliche work, they, word, sorry, they just have to pivot to whatever the new demand is. So in this case, face masks, they had just had this massive jump in demand for face masks for obvious reasons. So that's one way that they're just able to really, really just address whatever the markets are asking for them right now. I guess so a couple of specific numbers here. They had their marketplace revenue increasing by 116% to $147.5 million in the first quarter of this financial year, which is huge. And investors actually just loving this update coming through from Redbubble during the week. The stock is up 39%. So like last week, it closed closer to about $4.10. It's now $5.70. I mean, they've if, even if you just look at them year to date, right? So, the, so Redbubble for the, for the year... So far for 2020, they're up 422%. So definitely people still pricing in some big growth there. And I think I think they've still got a bit of a, they've still definitely got a runway to go because yeah, like I said, their, their product is, what they offer is very scalable and they can just, they're starting to push it out. Also, it's not just an Australia thing now, like it's starting to, to be pushed out in the UK and in the US. So really good result there. Pretty jealous if you're a shareholder out there. <laughs> I wish I had shares at Redbubble. Uh, well, I wish I'd bought them at the start of the year anyway. But yeah, really good result for them. Well, that is unfortunately all I have time for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode 33 of the Market Pulse podcast. Like I always say at the top of the show, flick me any listener questions you have, be they company related, be they market related, be they general investing inquiry related, be they anything related. I can uh, I can answer I can attempt to answer most things. Hope you're having a fantastic weekend. Enjoy the rest of your week as well. My name is Dion Grubin. This is the Market Pulse Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. Cheers.